A few, a few days ago, Morgan, my daughter-in-law, asked me, do you have any New Year's resolutions? And I just immediately said no. And she looked at me funny like, well, everybody's supposed to do that. And I just kind of shot back without her having said anything verbally because I can read people's minds. And I, no, no, I didn't know, but I could tell like, what? What kind of pastor doesn't make New Year's resolutions? And, and so I, I just kind of told her, well, I'd, I'd really prefer for people to just do stuff. Why do, have, why do people have to talk about doing stuff? Why can't they just go do stuff without resolving to do it? And then I backed up and thought about my response, and I thought, well, I probably should examine my life a little bit more, and it's not a bad thing to set goals. So I do have this one resolution, uh, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll tell you at the end of the year. And if I don't tell you at the end of the year, it's because I didn't keep it. Uh, but, but there is one thing, and it's kind of between me and the Lord, and it's a good thing to, to, to have resolutions. Uh, and maybe you don't, and that's okay, that's up to you. But most resolutions around this time of the year have to do, in some respect or another, with self-improvement. And that's a good thing. But if you're going to improve yourself, you need to analyze yourself or have a good, honest self-assessment. And so I got, I got to thinking about a, a starting point, and, and I couldn't help but go to the Apostle Paul, who does a little self-assessing. And it's worth going to the Apostle Paul because he was a very effective person. Uh, he planted more churches in the first century than any other human being on the face of the planet. And he also happens to be the one through whom more books in the New Testament came than any other person. And so I thought, hey, there's a good starting point, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul gives this little self-assessment. And he says, when it comes to all the sinners in the world, I'm the first of the worst. I'm the chief of sinners. Now, you might think, well, that sounds really harsh. And maybe that's not such a good starting point. Well, I want to try to change your mind on that this morning. And with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We are starting a little series today just uh, addressing the mess that is me. And I thought we'd start really, really simple with Paul's words here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, just real quickly, I want you to notice, Paul doesn't say, well, I was the worst. I'm going to say that. He doesn't say even I was the worst or am the worst at some things or I'm the worst at keeping secrets, I'm the worst at playing golf, I'm the worst card player or whatever. No, I am the worst. And he's talking about sinners in the world. Christ came to save, uh, came into the world to save sinners. So he's talking about all the sinners of the world. He says, I'm, I'm the worst. That's Paul. I'm the worst sinner in the world. Woo! You know, hey, is that, you know, are you overstating things? Is that a little strong? That's what he says. But for that reason, I was shown mercy. 
so that in me, the worst of sinners, he repeats himself in case you missed it the first time, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, you, you think, well, that, that's a little weird. Um, Paul says, I'm the worst. But as we're going to see a little bit later, he says, because I am the worst or the least, I'm actually the most effective or the best. And we're going to dig into that. And as we dig into this, hopefully we'll come up with some gold and silver or better yet, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so uh, let's just start real simple with his starting point. Uh, I'm the, the worst of sinners. Specifically, he, he's talking about like being the first of the worst. The word that he uses here is, is, uh, protus, like, uh, like prototype. He says, I'm, I'm the first. This is why in some translations, like the King James Version, you'll see that when Paul says that here's the trustworthy saying, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he says, of whom I am the chief, because that captures it better. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the first of the worst. Uh, which, by the way, some of you may have heard of John Bunyan, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, a little book that became very famous. John Bunyan wrote an autobiography, and his autobiography goes by the title of Abounding Grace, or Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and he's talking about himself. And so John Bunyan would sort of agree with Paul, I'm the worst of sinners, but he'd sort of disagree. Hey, Paul, you think you're the worst. I think I'm the worst. I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners. And, and some people read all that and they see Christian history or they just read the Apostle Paul and they have one of two takes, neither of which are really great interpretive moves or, or orthodox. But one of the ways in which people will read this is they'll say, Paul, you know, um, you, you're, that's just unreal. You know, that's just spiritual posturing. This is pure overstatement and exaggeration. That's one way that people will come at this. Because there are people that have been around churches and they go, you know, there's a lot of spiritual hype that goes around churches because I I know these people. And I say, how did it go? And on a scale of 1 to 10, what was it? Oh, it was a negative 1. The worst thing ever. Or... They'll say, oh, you should have met this guy. He was so godly, the best person. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, they're 11. They're the most spiritual person in the history of the world. And there's all this sort of overstatement. And sometimes people do spiritual posturing against other people. Oh, well, you think your sins are bad. Let me tell you my story. You know, like there's some sort of exaggerated overstatement. And sometimes people just say, Paul really wasn't serious. We're going to give him a pass. He wasn't exactly lying, but I don't take him seriously. That's just not real. And I want to suggest to you that Paul is not that flaky, okay? Paul doesn't do exaggeration, really. He's a very serious-minded, thoughtful person. This is a considered position. He repeats himself uh, in this same passage, but he says the same sort of thing about himself on two different occasions in two different books. And I want to take you to these just as an example, you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in uh, verses 9 through 10, you see Paul saying this, for I am the least of the apostles, uh, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them 
yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This sounds rather similar to 1 Timothy. Paul is saying, I'm, I'm the least. Now, even though I was the least, I was the most effective, and we'll get to that a little bit later. I was the, I was the least, but I, I was the best in terms of usefulness, but I, I was the least, not even worthy to be called an apostle. Then he talks about the saints in another place in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this, this is verses 7 through 8. I was made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. The grace was given to me, and he calls himself the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Now, that's a very strong statement. And you've got to remember, in the New Testament, whenever it's talking about the saints, it's not talking about, well, here's the Christians, and then here's super-Christians. You know, here here are the Christians, and you're going to get into heaven when you die. And then there are the Christians who not only go to heaven when they die, but they actually act like Christians, and they're good people. There's no... Oh, here's Christians and here's saints thing. In the Bible, all Christians are saints. We've all been made holy. We've all been set apart for God's holy purposes because we rest in the holiness or the righteousness of Christ. All of us are Christians. And Paul here is saying, I'm, I'm the least of all Christians. I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the, I'm the first of the worst of all sinners in the world. This is how Paul talks about himself. So you could say, I think Paul's exaggerating. I think this is unreal. I think this is spiritual posturing. You could say that, uh, but I think you, you would just absolutely be wrong and out of keeping with the way that Paul thinks. You could say then, okay, that's what Paul thinks about himself, but I just disagree. You, and this is what some people do. They'll say, okay, Paul seriously thought this about himself. And, and so the second position is he's just pathologically morbid. And there are people that would say, you know, you classic Christians, this is your problem. You talk about sin too much. you got to repent. You know, you're bad. I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, good grief. You know, just get over it. And that's how some people will respond to Paul. Not only is Paul saying, I'm a sinner. He's saying, I'm the chief of sinners. Like, come on, get off of it. He's just pathologically morbid. That's how some people will read this. And, And if that's you, I understand that. But I want to give you an even more extreme example of pathological morbidity, okay? You think Paul's bad. There's all kinds of people from Christian history who are even worse in this regard. And I'm going to give you an example. St. Augustine. St. Augustine was one of the leaders of the early church. He wrote this wonderful little spiritual testimony, spiritual autobiography. It's called Confessions. It's one of the more famous autobiographies in the history of the world. St. Augustine talks about how he needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of God. And he talks about how sinful he is, and he uses this example from his childhood. He says, you know, when I was a kid, and this is just amazing to read this. When I was a kid, I had some friends, and we went to this orchard. It was an apple orchard. We snuck into the apple orchard, and I climbed up in a tree, and we stole some apples. I'm such a sinner. Nothing but the blood of God will cover me. Now, people go, what? That's just kids being kids. You know, you don't sound like you need to go to a priest to get forgiven. You need to go to a therapist to talk about your perfectionism and your abusive parents or something. That's just crazy, you know. Oh, I stole some apples. I need to be forgiven. For us, it's not that big of a deal because we don't talk about sin that much and uh, we sort of weigh things differently, especially when it comes to stealing. Everybody steals. 
People steal office supplies. People in churches steal from God by not tithing. People, you know, will just steal from their neighbors. The government steals from us by, you know, printing too much money. And inflation is called, you know, government theft, but that's another thing altogether. We just kind of live in this, we just kind of live in this world where we just kind of take and we'll take from people legally and, and that's just kind of it. And, oh, and I know that they really don't deserve to give you what it is, but you're going to sue them just because you can, because if you can get away with it, you're going to do it. And I came across this from the IRS. I thought this was kind of interesting. I didn't even know this until a couple of weeks ago. You, a true story. You go, you go Google it. Check this out. It's on the IRS website. I wish I could put it up there. Here's, here's kind of the instruction. Stolen property. Here's some tax guidance for you. If you steal property, you must report its fair market value in your income in the year you steal it unless you return it to its rightful owner in the same year. Okay, so just so you know, you know, if you've stolen anything, make sure you report it and pay your taxes on it. Like, okay, how many... How many people who steal from their neighbor are very conscientious to make sure that they pay government the taxes that are owed? I mean, like, that's just weird. And by the way, if you are stealing and, and you want to, you know, be good with the government, give what you've stolen back to your neighbor before the year's end and then steal it back, okay? Then you can avoid the taxes on it. This is just a little loophole there. I'm just saying, here, here this is the environment we live in. We just take... You know, we just take. And, and if you can take it, fine. If you can get away with it, fine. That's just what we do. And so here's a kid who goes to a neighbor's orchard and steals some apples. Picks the apples off one tree out of an entire orchard. Oh, you know, nothing less than the blood of God is going to cover me. And, you know, the chief of sinners. And we look at that and we go, what are you talking about? That's, that's our disposition. Or John Bunyan, chief of sinners. Or are all you guys trying to compete to be chief of sinners? What is your pathological morbidity here? What is going on with you? That's how the world looks at it. And, and if that's how you kind of look at it, like this is crazy talk, I, I want to suggest that maybe you haven't heard it out well enough. So I want to help you to hear Paul out on this. This is really important. Let's go back to what Paul says about himself. Why does he say that he's the chief of sinners? Well, he, he mentions three things. He says, you know, blasphemy and persecution. And he says, and I was a violent man. But there are mitigating circumstances. Okay. He says, I, I was ignorant and I, I was unbelieving. Those are kind of mitigating circumstances. And here's what I mean. If a doctor hurts a patient, well, that's terrible. But what if they had the wrong beliefs? The, what if there was ignorance involved? What if you're talking about a doctor who really was trying to help a patient, but decades ago it was just more the thing to do to lobotomize somebody, you know, cut out part of their brain or, or shock therapy. Maybe they were trying to do good or leeches or whatever the case used to be, but they just missed. Well, that's too bad. The, the results are still terrible. Patients still got hurt, but they were trying to do the right thing. The, the intention was good. Paul here says, I was a blasphemer, but I didn't know that Jesus was who he said he was. I, I didn't believe he was the Messiah. And I persecuted the church, but I was ignorant that it actually was the body of Christ and that I was persecuting God in Christ. And I, I was ignorant. I was unbelieving. Well, that's too bad, Paul. You still persecuted the church and people still got killed and you still blasphemed, but you meant well. Still not good, but he meant well. 
How can Paul say all of that and then turn around and say, but I'm the chief of sinners? There's one other thing that Paul throws in here that I think is really important for us to understand. He says, and I was a violent man. Now, that's kind of a weird translation, but the word is a little bit difficult. The word is hubristes, which comes from the word hubris, which in Greek is pride. Uh, it's In this particular form, it is probably best understood as a trampler or a, a condescender, somebody who has people under their, their feet. What Paul is saying is this. You think I look bad on the outside. I persecuted and I blasphemed and I guess, you know, maybe I was trying to serve God or whatever. But when you get right down beneath the surface of the apparent motives and what I actually did, I actually look a lot worse. Because I was using religion and morality to put myself above other people. And everybody was beneath my feet. I didn't want anybody on top of me. I didn't want anybody telling me what to do or running my life. I wanted to be in a position where I was in charge and I was in control. And I used morality and religion to do that. At the heart of me is I'm just, I'm a trampler. I'm a me first kind of a person. And I just happen to be good at using religion to get my way. I prayed like crazy. I went to church like crazy. I memorized scripture like crazy. I didn't abuse children or women and I watched what I said and all the rest, but I just, I was able to play with inside the rules so that I could posture myself in such a way that I was over everybody and everybody else was underneath my feet. I'm a trampler. I'm a condescender. I'm the chief of sinners. Now, Paul is saying largely the same thing that Augustine says. Let me go back to Augustine. Oh, I stole apples as a kid. He said, but here's the truth about me. This is Augustine. As a child, I wasn't stealing the apples because I was hungry even. He said, I had apples already. This is his testimony. I already had apples. I didn't need to steal apples. And the apples I had actually tasted better than the ones I stole. You know why I stole the apples? Because I like to steal. Because it was fun. I wasn't stealing so as to get the apples. I was using the apples as a means to steal because I'm a thief. I just enjoyed the sin because it was sin. Because I'm a sinner. Because I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. It's the same thing that, that we see even in our little kids, even before our children are old enough to articulate. There's a look in their eyes or in their face. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. It's in you. It's in me. Paul says, that's, that's why I'm the chief of sinners. I know my heart and what's inside of me like nobody else does. So Augustine takes the apples, throws them on the ground. They're under his feet. And so are the, so is the owner of the orchard. I don't care about you. It's my life. I'll do what I want. Well, you grow up from that. And then before long, it's not apples that are spilled out on the ground, but the blood of the martyrs. See, the difference between, uh, the difference between the sins of the child and the sins of the adult, even the worst sins of the adult, the difference is only in the objects. It's not in, in the essential nature of it. Let me put it to you like this. You got two acorns. One acorn falls in a bucket, okay, dry bucket. Another acorn falls on soil that is moist and there, it's filled with nutrients. 
One acorn rots in the bucket over time, and the other sprouts and becomes this huge tree. Now, here's my question. Which acorn had the most strength? Which acorn had the most vitality? Well, there was no difference. They're both acorns. The, o- the only difference wasn't in the acorn. It was only in the soil or the opportunity. Everything that was in the heart of the child is in the heart of the adult. The sins of the child only differ from the sins of the adult in terms of the objects, but not in terms of the nature. Paul says, I know what's going on inside of me. And so, I, and Paul is letting, you know, I want to clue you into something. Even though on the outside I look very, very religious and the way that I was living my life was in accordance with the customs and the social norms and and all what I was doing was not only socially acceptable but applauded. Even though I, it seems like my motives were right, I just want to serve God. I want to tell you, beneath the surface even of what I now see as blasphemy or beneath the surface of the persecution or beneath the surface even of my well-intentioned, I'm just trying to serve God, beneath all of that in a way that I could see that nobody else can see, I'm a trampler. I'm a hubristes. I'm a violent man. I am filled with pride and everybody else, their life revolves around me and I even used God so as to put myself in a position where I'd be over other people. I'm a condescender. I'm the chief of sinners and I know it about me. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, but that's Paul. And that's also been the way that Christians have been throughout the centuries in terms of, hey, you want to know the truth about me? When people have come to grace, here's what they've confessed. I'm the chief of sinners. Everybody who's a great saint in some respect or another comes to this point where they say, no, no, I think Paul was kind of right but wrong. I'm the chief of sinners. You get this from Augustine. You get this from John Bunyan. You get this in kind of strange ways that don't always show up in an obvious way. Okay, let me give you an example. Rahab the prostitute, okay? You go back to the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 6, there's this story of this, that she's introduced as the prostitute. She's named Rahab, and she hides the spies. The spies come into the city. She hides them. The walls of Jericho fall, and she's saved because she saves the spies. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11 and in James chapter 2, Rahab is highlighted as this person of faith. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, we see that Rahab is the great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandmother of Jesus. Jesus is a direct descendant of Rahab. She is highlighted as a person of faith, but even in the Bible, in Hebrews and in James, she's not called Rahab the righteous or Rahab the courageous or Rahab the savior of Israel. She's Still, Rahab the prostitute. When we get to heaven one day and you and you meet Rahab, I wouldn't be surprised if she just introduces herself. Of, Hi, I'm Rahab the prostitute. Now that sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? But it just hangs around. We, you know, we do this in kind of subtle ways. Zacchaeus, remember the story of Zacchaeus? He's the tax collector. He comes down for the tree. He repents. Jesus, Jesus says, "You're a child of Abraham," and Jesus fixes his life and. And Zacchaeus repents of, you know, his sedition and all the other things that go with being a tax collector. But he becomes a Christian, and he's in the Bible, and, and Jesus saves him and redeems him. But we don't call him Zacchaeus the zealous or Zacchaeus the redeemed. We call him Zacchaeus the tax collector. 
Once a tax collector, always a tax. I don't know. That's just how it works. You, we could go through all of these different examples uh, in the Bible. Uh, you know, another one, Doubting Thomas. Poor Doubting Thomas. Always Doubting Thomas. Remember that one time he doubted? And, uh, but we, you know, forget about calling him, you know, Thomas the martyr who ends up going to India as a missionary where he dies, you know, crucified apparently upside down or something like that because he's on the mission field for Jesus. That's, a, that's how the story goes. You know, forget about the fact that he's okay, Jesus, we'll go to Jerusalem with you and die. Maybe that's a statement of faith. But no, no, no. We don't call him, you know, a, a, Apostle Thomas. It's Doubting Thomas. You know why we don't think twice about these things or that I don't think they even take offense at this is because you know, you can't spell Messiah without mess. Your mess becomes a part of your message. The, the, the grace of God gets highlighted in you having needed his grace. And the Apostle Paul is not slow to let people know, I didn't just need the grace applied to the fact that I had persecuted people and blasphemed. To the very heart of me, to the very core of me, I am rotten. I'm a sinner. In fact, I would say I'm the chief of sinners. We call him the Apostle Paul, but Paul never gives himself this designation. Did you know that? Paul never says, hey, I'm Apostle Paul. He says, I'm Paul the Apostle. That's my position. But you know what he calls himself? Chief of sinners. First of the worst. When we go to heaven one day and Paul introduces himself, hi, I'm Paul, chief of sinners. And then John Bunyan's going to knock him sideways and say, no, no, I'm, I'm chief of sinners. And then you know, Augustine's going, no, 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 I'm chief of sinners. Everybody's vying for that title. Years ago, there was this guy who wrote this famous hymn. I don't know if you've heard of it. Amazing Grace. Uh, John Newton. You know what he did? He was a slave ship captain. That's what he did. So that's why he writes this song, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Did you know there were actually some hymnals? Or, and this didn't last for a whole long Time, but there were actually some people who tried to change the word away from wretch because, oh, that's just terrible. I can't call myself a wretch. There are some churches that would refuse to sing that song because we can't call ourselves wretches. You know why John Newton called himself a wretch? Because he looked deep into his heart and he saw the same thing that the Apostle Paul saw. I'm a wretch. I'm the chief of sinners. Now, we're going to wrap things up. I'm going to do, I'm going to like, hey, we're going to start the new year right. We're going to get out before 12 o'clock. Don't get used to it, okay? But we're going to wrap this thing up. Some of you are going, okay, Ernest, give me some practical takeaway here. Are you saying that I need to, I need to call myself the chief of sinners? Are you saying? I'm not going to say that. Paul didn't say that. He didn't call anybody else but himself chief of sinners. Are you saying that I should be okay with identifying myself as a wretch? I, I, I didn't say that. Just say John Newton did that. But I would say that for me... That's an appropriate starting point. Like, what do you mean? Let me, let me give you some, let me give you some takeaways here that are, it's really important for you to understand this. I, I want you to know that Paul sets himself up as an example in this. I'm going to go back to what we just read a little bit earlier out of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says that he is an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. He's saying, and and when he says, I'm an example, he uses a word that means like hyper example. That's the word is uh, hypotyposis. He's saying, I'm not just the type or the example. I'm the hyper type. I'm the ultimate example. 
I am the, the absolute example for you and for me. To all who believe in Jesus, to all who have eternal life, I'm the example here. And what's the example that Paul sets? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. That's Paul's example. And so, okay, Paul says that, he needs, that we need to follow his example in this, in identifying ourselves in this way. Why? Okay, Paul, you said it, but why does that make sense? Here's why it makes sense. Here's why you need to do this. Number two, only to the degree that you are the worst of sinners is, the, is Jesus the best of saviors. That's, it's real simple. You go to Luke chapter 7. Remember the story where Jesus goes and visits Simon the Pharisee and um, Simon the Pharisee says, come on in, you know, but he doesn't give Jesus a kiss of greeting, doesn't hug his neck or shake his hand. He's like, hey, come on in, have a seat. And they have this interesting conversation and it's a little distant. It's sort of weird. But Jesus, as he's there reclining at the table, has this woman of ill repute come in. She's a prostitute and... She is crying tears of joy and wetting his feet, and she's bathing him in perfume. And Simon, of course, is, you know, what is going on in my house? This is craziness. And Jesus lets Simon know, you want to know why she is absolutely in love with me and all you want is a conversation? You want to know why you didn't greet me, but she hasn't stopped weeping and pouring perfume on my feet since I got here? Here's why. The person who's forgiven much loves much. Unless you're the worst of sinners, Jesus cannot be the best of saviors. You say, well, can I grow in this? Of course you can. But to the degree that you're not seeing yourself as chief of sinners, to that degree you still need to grow in grace. Paul sets the example here. You don't necessarily have to start out saying, well, I'm the first of the worst, but let me tell you where grace takes you. It takes you to that point where you say, I'm the first of, of the worst. I'm the, the least of the saints. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of all the sinners. I'm the first of the worst. It's where grace takes you. Why does grace take you there? Because this is how effective ministry is done. Let me go back and, and read to you once again verse 18. Paul is talking to Timothy. He's not just talking to all believers in general, but he's talking to Timothy and say, Here, here's how ministry works. And he talks about Timothy's ordination when words of prophecy were spoken over him and when he was installed into office. As, a, as an elder, as a shepherd of the people. Paul says this, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction, this instruction we've just been looking at, his example. I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made, made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith uh, and a good conscience. You want to be effective? Here's how you do it. Follow my example. Here's my example. I'm the first of the worst. I'm the chief of sinners. See, God pours out, hyper pours out on you and on me, grace and faith and love. Here's how Paul puts it again in the same passage, verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me 
abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the word that's used here is hyper-poured. Paul says, I'm the hyper-example, and here's what God does. He hyper-pours out love. He hyper-pours out grace. He hyper-pours out faith. Well, how in the world are you going to be able to hyper-contain, hyper-receive the hyper-love and the hyper-faith and the hyper-grace that is poured out in hyper-abundance from a God who is limitless in his supply? How's that work? You've got to be hyper-empty. You want them to be hyper-exalted, you have to be hyper-low. It's just the, the nature of it. See, for the, for the Christian, the virtue of empty hands is not being empty-handed. It's that you're in the position to receive what it is that God has for you so that it can flow out to other people. It's not just about Jesus being the greatest Savior because you recognize you're the worst sinner. It's about the grace and the love and the faith being able to flow through you to other people because you are hyper-empty. This is why Paul would say of himself, although I was the least of the apostles, his grace was not poured out in vain. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It was, it didn't hit me on the head and bounce out all over. It just flowed through me and flowed through me and flowed through me. Why? Paul says, here's my example. I'm the worst of sinners. And it's hard to argue against the results because if you look at the most effective people in the New Testament or in Christian history, Nobody planted more churches than Paul. And nobody was used by God to bring about more scripture in the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. You move the Apostle Paul aside. Let's just think about the 12 apostles. Who of the 12 apostles do you think was just like the most effective? And it's hard to tell, but just like off the top of my head, I'd have to say, well, it had to be Peter. He becomes the pillar apostle. He's the head of the church in Jerusalem. And and why? Remember the whole, hey, uh, Peter, you denied me three times thing, but I forgive you. The one who's forgiven much loves much. You can't effectively be in love with Jesus. You can't effectively allow Jesus to minister in you and through you until you confess, I'm the first of the worst. I'm the... I'm the chief of sinners. Now, I'll tell you when it really gets tough to do this. It's, it's hardest to do this when other people, especially religious people, are condescending toward you. Uh, there is a reason that people avoid churches because churches do attract self-righteousness and religiousness. It's true. If you've been around, you know that's true. And there's nothing more put-offish than having people condescend toward you. I know. We, we, would, we don't necessarily want to hang around with tax collectors and prostitutes, but if you had to choose between Pharisees and prostitutes, 99% of us would say, I'd rather hang out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, frankly. You know what makes me so attracted to Jesus in terms of a Savior is that he didn't just die for tax collectors and prostitutes. He died for religious people. He died for the Pharisees, too. And on those moments when you feel like someone is condescending toward you, you may be right, you may not. We're sensitive to that. But in that moment, when there's condescension, here's the natural response. I'm so glad I'm not like them. Or, 
we get condescending toward the condescending. And in that moment, you have a choice. Am I really the chief of sinners or is it this other person who's so condescending and religious? Paul knew. I can't minister to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And I can't really minister effectively to the people who used to be like me either. Because condescension will absolutely destroy your effectiveness. And it will absolutely undermine your personal relationship with Jesus as the best of the best of the best. And in those moments when I, it sticks in my throat maybe, where I go, you know, I don't know that I am the chief of sinners. You haven't met Joe over here or whoever. That, not this Joe. This Joe's wonderful. I, I don't know. In those moments where you say, I just don't know that I could say I'm the chief of sinners. In that moment, that ought to be obvious to you that maybe you are. If I can't say, and I know, if I can't say wholeheartedly without reservation that I'm the chief of sinners, then I know in that moment I've got growth to do. And I'm humbled by Christ who served the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the Pharisees just as well. I, I, earlier this week, I got sort of a little living illustration. I ordered uh, a five-by-eight carpet for my office as a rug. And, you know, who, or, who orders something around Christmas for themselves? I'm the worst. Okay, and so I, I ordered a, a carpet for my office, and it was just five by eight, not that big. But, you know, if you're going to get a rug, you have to get a, like a rug pad. It helps keep the rug fresh, and it keeps it steady and in place. So I ordered a rug pad and a carpet, okay, a rug. I thought I only received the rug pad, like it was supposed to come on the 29th, it came on the 27th, and I had this rug pad, and I thought, well, how come I didn't get my carpet? And at first I thought, this is not the rug I ordered. It's always just a rug pad. It kind of had a design, but it was gray and kind of yucky, and I thought they sent me the wrong thing, and, oh, it's a rug pad. So I laid it over in the corner. I waited for the next day. The rug didn't come. The next day, the rug didn't come. The next day, the rug didn't come. It was really a pretty rug. And so I was like, this is this is late. So I went to my email and looked up, you know, rugusa.com or whatever, like, what is going on with my delivery? And they said that both were delivered at the same time. Here's what happened. This beautiful rug was wrapped up in this ugly rug, rug pad, and I didn't know it for three days. All the beauty was right there in front of me. It was just covered up by the pad. The way it's supposed to work is the pad gets covered by the rug. I'm the rug pad. You know, my, my glory is in holding Jesus, having all of Jesus rest on all of me of being the one who is completely and utterly covered where none of his glory slips around and it's totally fully on display. But how often is it that Jesus kind of gets wrapped up and we think for a moment that there's some kind of righteousness maybe on the corner that ought to be sticking out, that ought to be showing. That's not how it works. I can only be fully covered if I recognize I need to be fully covered. I'm only fully filled if I'm fully empty. I only recognize he's the best if I recognize that I'm the chief of sinners. And in those moments when I recognize maybe I don't think that, that is a pure sign to me that I am the chief of sinners. Let's bow for a word of prayer. 
Father, we uh, just want to say thank you for loving us the way you do. And uh, it is a testimony just of how pure your love is that you would love the likes of us who think in some respect or another we do deserve to be our own boss, that we can be in control. And sometimes we're not only over other people, but we use you so as to be over other people. And we are so messed up. But I can't confess this for other people, but Paul saw beneath the exterior of himself and he recognized, I'm the chief of sinners and others have followed rightly his example and they've been the saints that are also worthy of our followership, our example. So Lord, uh, we just, we know we're challenged by you, but your grace does cleanse us because as uh, we find ourselves less and less of who we used to be and you flowing through us more and more and flowing to us more and more, uh, we feel all the more safe to recognize um, we can come clean. If not necessarily with other people, because that would be too weird, we can come clean with ourselves and with you. And, and from the starting point of utter emptiness, uh, we can move forward to knowing what it is to be filled to overflowing with your joy, with your love, with your grace, and with your faith. So, Lord, help each and every one of us to find the appropriate starting place and help us to recognize that even when we've not gotten to the fullness of the starting place, you, your grace is still abundant. You love us even when we don't love you. Your grace gracious toward us even when we don't recognize it. We, even when we're faithless, you're still faithful to us. And I just pray that by your grace and by your trust and by your love, we would be broken. That we would find ourselves on the, on the floor face down. And your beauty covering us completely on display in and through our lives. That we would be effective for you. And uh, Lord, if there are any here who have yet to find uh, you as their beauty... I pray, Lord, that you would enable them just in this moment to say, Lord, I know that I've sinned. And it's not just that I messed up. I, I sinned because I'm a sinner. And, I, and, and Jesus, just being honest, I don't know that I'm ready to say I'm the worst or the first of the worst or chief of sinners. But I know I'm, I, I'm a mess. And I know I need your forgiveness. I know I'm not my own Savior, but you are. And so, Lord, I confess in this moment that I have sinned. I have fallen short and, and I am broken. And I need your love and your grace and just your faith in me to cover me. So, Lord, I trust you as, as Savior and Lord. And I, I accept what Jesus did on the cross for me. And I want to live under that the rest of my life and grow in it. Thank you, God, for saving me of my, of my sins. Thank you for being, bringing me into a relationship with you. And I trust that over time that relationship is going to heal me. And make me great. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if uh, you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you in that relationship. I'd love to hear uh, from you uh, via email. Just send something to me at earnest at msbchurch.com. Or maybe you want to pull me aside after the service. But let's go ahead and stand together as uh, we just kind of sing uh, this little hymn of uh, invitation. And we'll let this be our benediction. It was so good to see you this morning. Let's give all the praise and all the glory to Jesus.